Welcome. This is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this is Exploration. Every week on Exploration, we discuss the fascinating world of science and its impact on society. And today, leading off, we're going to talk about the volatile situation with regards to the invasion of the Ukraine. Specifically, what are the dangers facing nuclear power plants in the Ukraine? Who would have thought? Who would have thought that one day we would see a war zone? A war zone in which nuclear power plants were sort of like chess pieces. Think about that. You know, we physicists over the decades have run many scenarios on nuclear accidents. What happens if there's an earthquake? What happens if there's a lightning storm? What happens in case of sabotage? But who would have thought? Who would have thought to do a scenario where you have modern European armies armed to the teeth fighting each other in a war zone with a nuclear power plant there? Who would have thought? And also, there's a run throughout Europe. There's a run on potassium iodide, the so-called anti-radiation pill. People have been so spooked by the possibility of a nuclear meltdown in Central Europe that there's a run, a run in Belgium, Finland, and other European countries, people just taking as much potassium iodide off the shelves. Is that really the best way to approach this crisis? Well, we'll find out in today's exploration. Well, as I mentioned before, the whole world is gasping at the fact that nuclear power plants are now in the crosshairs in this war zone. Now remember, the situation changes hour by hour, day by day. By the time you hear this broadcast, things may have changed drastically. So I apologize for that. But let's talk about the situation. The Ukraine has about 15 nuclear power plants. Six of them concentrated in one area, which generates about 6,000 megawatts of power, six operating nuclear power plants, and they were seized in the opening days of this invasion. Not only that, but we had the old Chernobyl reactor, four of them, four reactors around the old Chernobyl reactor, and they were also taken by Russian forces. And the question is, how stable are they, given the fact that shells are going off, fires are breaking off, Workers are forced to work at gunpoint without hardly any sleep or rest. I mean, how unstable can you get where soldiers are fighting with each other, shooting bullets and grenades at each other right next to a nuclear power plant with enormous quantities of uranium dioxide fuel and nuclear waste? So what does it mean? Well, first of all, you have to realize that there are three types of nuclear accidents, at least. The first type is the Chernobyl type, where we had an explosion back in 1986. Workers there actually dismantled the safety systems. They were making repairs and maintenance on the reactor. They dismantled the control rods, which control the chain reaction. There was a transient, a sudden burst of energy, and the reactor went out of control. In fact, the reactor went supercritical. In some sense, it was like a tiny atomic bomb. Supercriticality is the word for a runaway chain reaction, i.e. what happens in a nuclear weapon. 
well, at that point, a hydrogen gas was generated, steam was generated, and then there was an explosion, an explosion generated by hydrogen and steam that blew the top off the Chernobyl reactor. The core, about a third of the core was vaporized and sent into the air where it flooded Central Europe. Pieces of the cloud went all around the planet Earth, in fact. In fact, in New York City, I was tracking it, and there it was. You can actually see the rise in nuclear byproducts in Manhattan as a consequence of what happened on the other side of the Earth. And sure enough, years later, we have leukemia rates rising, and then solid tumors, which are predictable from a nuclear power plant. So how was the accident stopped? We had this raging nuclear power plant with the top blown off. It was on fire. Uh, fire workers uh, came to try to bring it under control. Many of them died of radiation poisoning, however. What brought this raging accident uh, in control? It was the Red Air Force. The Red Air Force came with helicopters. Helicopters with lead shielding on the bottom so the pilots wouldn't get overexposed. And they dropped borated water on the reactor and cement and basically buried the reactor in concrete and borated water. Boron is a way to absorb neutrons to control the chain reaction and that's how the Chernobyl accident was finally ended. Actually, it's not ended at all. It's still in operation. It's still melting its way into the earth. Every time there's a rainstorm, for example, water seeps into the earth, moderates the neutrons, excites the chain reaction, and needles, radiation needles, start to go because of the heightened radiation. So Chernobyl is still unstable, believe it or not. Anyway, that's one kind of accident. The maximum accident when you have a hydrogen and steam explosion blowing the lid off the reactor. More typical is Fukushima. Fukushima started with a class 9 earthquake, one of the highest on the Richter scale, created a tidal wave that swamped the, the units at Fukushima and paralyzed the electrical system so they were without power. Without power, you mean you can't control the level of cooling water inside the reactor. Water levels began to drop dramatically as a consequence until the core was uncovered. Now, it takes about an hour or so for the core to completely melt. Well, yes, the cores, three of them, melted totally. We've never seen this before. In the history of nuclear power, we've never seen the total liquefaction of the core of not one, not two, but three nuclear power plants. Well, Tokyo was aghast at the implications, and plans were drawn up, believe it or not, to evacuate Tokyo. Can you imagine that? It's like trying to evacuate New York City. You can't do it. Think of the mess it would create. Well, fortunately, the reactor did not spin totally out of control. We came right to the brink of a huge catastrophic meltdown, three melted nuclear power plants caused by a loss of cooling, caused by a tidal wave, caused by an earthquake. And then there's a third type of nuclear accident, a nuclear waste accident. You see, every year that a nuclear power plant runs, about a third of the core becomes waste. 
you're talking about roughly 30 tons of waste generated per year. Where do you put it? Well, there's no permanent repository for nuclear waste. Yucca Mountains has been closed by President Barack Obama. So what do we do with nuclear waste? We leave it there. That's what we do at most nuclear power plants. Or, for the short term, we put it in spent fuel ponds. A spent fuel pond is like a swimming pool. It glows in the dark. You put the nuclear waste there until radiation levels begin to drop. Now, let's say you lose power. If you lose power, there's always a chance that the pumps don't work. Then cooling water does not circulate. And then the water starts to heat up. Water could then start to boil. And if the water boils off, the nuclear fuel rods are exposed to the air. At that point, temperatures begin to rise. If they hit 5,000 degrees, at that point, you have a meltdown in the spent fuel pond. So these are three possible scenarios. Now let's talk about the Ukraine. What could happen there? Well, with the first round of invasions, six nuclear power plants were encircled by the Russians. That is the largest nuclear complex in all of Europe. Six operating nuclear power plants generating 6,000 megawatts of energy. The danger there was meltdown. The danger there was loss of power, creating a drop in cooling water, exposing the core, like what happened at Three Mile Island and Fukushima, causing the core to melt. However, it didn't progress to that point. The Russians came in and under gunpoint, at gunpoint, they forced the workers to take control of that reactor. And that in itself is a danger sign. These workers are overworked, hardly any sleep, working under gunpoint. How effective is that? Well, anyway, that's the danger at a nuclear power plant. The danger there is the loca, loss of cooling accident. By losing cooling water, temperatures rise, you hit, hit 5,000 degrees Fahrenheit, and you have a full-scale meltdown. Now let's talk about Chernobyl, because the Russian military took Chernobyl. There we have four nuclear power plants. One of them, of course, melted down and exploded back in 1986. The other three reactors, well, they've been shut down. In fact, they've been shut down since the year 2000. So they've been dormant for about 22 years. So the Russians cut off electricity to the Chernobyl site, and that's where the danger is. Not only that, but sensors. Sensors connecting the International Atomic Energy Agency in Vienna to the reactor were also cut off. In other words, we were operating blind. We didn't know what was happening at the site. So there were conflicting points of view. At the International Atomic Energy Agency, the branch of the UN in Vienna, they, amount, they announced the fact that, well, things are relatively stable. Chernobyl is an older reactor site. A lot of the rods, 20,000 of them, have cooled down, cooled down to the point where it's not so much of a danger. That's the position of the IAEA, which, as I mentioned before, has lost lost sensor readings, so they are operating blind. Then you have the Ukrainian authorities. The Ukrainian authorities take the worst case scenario. Let's say, for example, because this is a war zone, 
that bombs go off, hand grenades go off, fires start, gunfire erupts, or there's an accident. Somebody throws a hand grenade inside the spent fuel pond and ruptures the concrete walls. You see, we're in the middle of a war zone. This is not normal times. Under normal times, the situation could be normalized relatively soon. You bring in top workers who understand how the nuclear power plant runs. Everything is under control. You put in the control rods. You make sure that the pond has plenty of water and the accident is over. But this is a war zone. What happens if things start to spiral out of control? Let's say there's a dogfight. Let's say gunfire is heard. Fires break out. At that point, all bets are off. For example, if somebody throws a hand grenade into a nuclear fuel pond, then who knows what's going to happen? You're talking perhaps a rupture of the spent fuel pond. As water leaks out, the rods are exposed, and without any cooling, you could get another meltdown. Or for that matter, if the rods are exposed and somebody throws a hand grenade and ruptures, ruptures some of these spent fuel rods, we're talking about exposing the atmosphere to pure nuclear waste. And just remember that this nuclear waste is hot, highly radioactive, very dangerous, and will be radioactive for millions of years. Of course, the level of radiation will damp with time, but there's enough radiation, enough nuclear waste there to last for millions of years. And so that's the danger at Chernobyl. Now, what's happening there? Well, as I said before, an argument began, an argument between the Ukrainian authorities and the scientists at the IAEA. The IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, a branch of the UN based in Vienna, says that if everything it proceeds normally, if there are no fights, if there's no bombs going off, there's no fires, then things can be brought under control. And there's reason to believe that to be true. Because at that point, water will be restored, power will be restored, water will flow over the nuclear rods so that they're not exposed, and things can be stable. But look, this is a war zone. People are dying. People are shooting at each other. They're throwing grenades at each other. In a situation like that, I think all bets are off. I think that the unthinkable has to be thought through carefully. We cannot assume the best case scenario. A more deadly scenario is, let's say, fires break out. All of a sudden, there's a gunfight in the vicinity. And for some reason, somebody throws a shell or a hand grenade or some tank goes awry and a shell lands in the spent fuel pond. At that point, you're talking about rupturing the walls of the spent fuel pond. As water gushes out, the rods are exposed, things start to heat up, and as I said, if there are explosives in the area, that would be enough to pulverize the nuclear waste and send them into the atmosphere. Well, how much nuclear waste is there? Well, at the old Chernobyl site, there are 200 tons, 200 nuclear tons buried under all that rubble. Now, elsewhere, we have the nuclear waste from three nuclear power plants at the Chernobyl site. And how much nuclear waste? 
20,000 fuel assemblies. There are 20,000 fuel assemblies stored as nuclear waste. And so, God forbid, let us hope that there are no firefights, no accidental shelling, no hand grenades being thrown into the spent fuel pond, because that in turn could cause chaos. Now, what kind of chaos? Well, we're talking about vaporizing nuclear waste, which consists of isotopes like strontium-90, cesium-137, and uh, nuclear byproducts like iodine-131. Now, believe it or not, throughout Europe, there's a panic. Panic buying of potassium iodide, the so-called anti-radiation pill. There's a run. You can't go to stores in places like Belgium, for example, or Finland, and try to buy potassium iodide. So what's the logic behind trying to get an anti-radiation pill? Well, don't get your hopes up. You see, the active ingredient <coughs> in potassium iodide is iodine. And one of the major byproducts of nuclear waste is iodine-131. Iodine-131. Where does it go? Like iodine, it goes to the thyroid gland, which causes thyroid cancer. And in fact, that's one of the first signs of radiation in an accident is the creation of tumors caused by thyroid cancers. So that's something that is a telltale sign that there's been a nuclear accident. And we saw that at Chernobyl. Thyroid cancer, one of the first symptoms of radiation poisoning due to a nuclear accident. Now, the logic is as follows, that if you take potassium iodide, it floods the thyroid gland with good iodine. So when the bad iodine comes along, there's no room, and then you excrete the iodine-131 that's radioactive, but the good iodine remains inside your thyroid gland. That's the logic. Now, <laughs> what's wrong with that logic? What's wrong with that logic, first of all, is that iodine-131 is not the only water-soluble byproduct you have to worry about. There's also strontium-90, cesium-137. In fact, there's a whole zoo of nuclear byproducts inside nuclear waste. So don't think that these potassium iodide pills are going to save you from radiation poisoning. What's going to save you is, of course, if you take your destiny in your hands and fight against the war. But simply taking potassium iodide has negative side effects. First of all, in large quantities, it could be poisonous. It's not neutral. It has side effects, some of them kind of unpleasant. So don't think the potassium iodide gives you a shield against radiation poisoning. And, don't re and realize that there are side effects if you do take potassium iodide. So I don't advise you to take potassium iodide as a, quote, anti-radiation uh, device in order to prevent the outbreak of lung cancer. It doesn't work that way. Well, now I'd like to shift gears a little bit on exploration and talk about a potential medical breakthrough. And this concerns Alzheimer's. No, we're not talking about a cure for Alzheimer's. But we're beginning to understand some of the paradoxes involved with Alzheimer's that allows us to begin to dream about one day finding a cure.
First of all, there's a paradox with regards to Alzheimer's. Some doctors call it the disease of the century because as the population ages, we're going to see an epidemic in Alzheimer's disease. And that paradox is as follows. People who have Alzheimer's, severe form of Alzheimer's, their brain is clogged up by what is called beta amyloid protein. When you do autopsies on these individuals, you find that the brain is coated with this gummy substance, this beta amyloid protein. So scientists would say, aha, maybe there's a one-to-one relationship. Maybe that's the cause of Alzheimer's. But there's a problem with that theory because some people could be perfectly healthy, have a very, very sharp mind, but during an autopsy, you find that their brain is all gummed up. So it's not a one-to-one relationship. However, there is a relationship between those two, but what is it? Well, here is a potential breakthrough. It turns out that protein molecules are very complicated, sometimes containing hundreds, thousands of individual atoms, and many of them have spindles and spirals in them that spiral in one direction. They can spiral clockwise, or they can spiral counterclockwise, and so there's a handedness, a handedness in the uh, Alzheimer's protein. And sure enough, when you analyze the Alzheimer's protein, this beta amyloid, you find that there are two types, one that goes left and one that spirals right. One of them causes the Alzheimer's disease. The other one does not. So there's a good form and a bad form. So then the question is, if the bad form is what clogs up the brain and interferes with the communication between neurons, then is it possible one day to find a cure for that? Well, at the present time, the answer is no. But the very fact that we can identify what seems to cause Alzheimer's is a tremendous breakthrough. Because now we can focus on the amyloid protein, but realize there's two types. Now, these two types are called prions. Prions is a new development in science. We used to think that all diseases were spread by bacteria and viruses. And that's it, folks. Bacteria and viruses, they spread illnesses. Why? Because they can reproduce. We don't see reproduction anywhere else in our uh, experience in the body. It's just germs and viruses that cause self-replicating diseases. However, there's a new theory called prions. Prions are misshapen proteins. Proteins that are shaped the wrong way, so they don't function properly. And when these prions bump into normal um, protein molecules, they force the other protein molecule to fold up in the incorrect way. So that's how they propagate. They don't propagate by mitosis. They don't propagate by DNA making copies of itself. Nope. They propagate much differently by direct contact with other proteins. Now, this is a controversial theory, but it was later borne out. In fact, the Nobel Prize was given to this doctor who is brave enough to propose this unorthodox theory. Now, how does this impact on you and me? 
It turns out that many of the diseases of the elderly, including Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, even ALS, which uh, killed my colleague Stephen Hawking, these diseases, we think, are caused by misshapen proteins. You see, in the world of proteins, proteins are what make the body work. They create energy, they create flesh, they create hormones, the immune system, our entire body, outside of nucleic acids and bone, our entire body is composed mainly of proteins. But proteins, in order to function, have to have the right shape. Now, we used to think that these molecules bumped into cells and did their magic because of some interchange of information. No, it turns out that it's the shape, it's the shape of the protein molecule that determines its function. Who would have thought? For example, a key and a lock. It turns out, for example, that the coronavirus is shaped like a key. These are the spikes of the coronavirus, which gives it the name, corona. So these act like keys. And what do these keys fit into? They fit into the surface of our lung cells. And so the very shape the fact that the shape of the coronavirus looks like a key allows it to gain entrance to our cells, and then the virus injects its genetic material into the cell, which then replicate by the hundreds, and then the cell dies, releasing the virus into your bloodstream. So that's how these things can reproduce. And so this means that prions open up a whole new branch of medicine. Instead of just studying bacteria and studying viruses, we realize that common illnesses of the elderly, like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's disease, may be caused by something that we have overlooked, and that is the shape of the protein molecule. Next thing is we have to understand why the shape. Does it fit like a lock and a key someplace? Is that why it can hit a neuron and cause the neuron to malfunction? What is it about the shape of the amyloid protein that causes such enormous destruction of our neurons? Well, the answer is we don't know. However, by looking at the genes, the genes that create the protein, we can begin to figure out what the purpose of that protein molecule is given its shape. Now, it turns out that the body naturally flushes out amyloid protein once every 48 hours or so. So that's a clue. If the brain normally flushes out amyloid proteins, then perhaps we can figure out how that mechanism works. So it flushes out the bad protein. And for that matter, how does it determine whether a molecule is left-handed or right-handed? Let me explain. When life first got started on the Earth billions of years ago, molecules, of course, were complicated even then. They could curl left, right, they could curl clockwise, they could curl counterclockwise. Everything was up for grabs. However, for some reason that we don't understand, billions of years ago, some of these molecules were left-handed. And they propagated other left-handed proteins, and these left-handed proteins became the proteins of life. That's why when we encounter a right-handed protein, sometimes we don't know what to do with it. 
For example, sugar. Sugar, uh, certain forms of sugar are either left-handed or right-handed, and you can manufacture them. And the wrong version of sugar actually tastes sweet, but some people think that maybe it's not fattening. So some people think that maybe there's a, a commercial use to the left-handedness and to the right-handedness of our medicines. But anyway, the point is that our body, our body is constructed out of one-handedness of proteins, the left-handed protein. So right-handed proteins, well, we have to investigate what they do. The thinking is, and this is not verified, but it's a new result, the new thinking is that it's the wrong-handed beta amyloid protein that is the dangerous one. That's the one that causes Alzheimer's. Now, again, this is a new theory. It just got um, a boost just a few months ago when scientists were able to tell the difference between the two in terms of what causes Alzheimer's. But if it works out, if it works out, it could open up a whole new pharmacology. Well, that's it for the first part of exploration. If you want to know more about exploration, go to my website, mkaku.org, m-k-a-k-u.org. I have 5 million fans on Facebook, and I've written five New York Times bestsellers. My latest New York Times bestseller is about what I do for a living. The book is called The God Equation, The Quest for a Theory of Everything. Well, stay tuned now for the second half of exploration. Exploration with Dr. Michio Kaku. You know, in the first part of exploration, we talked to the possibility of a nuclear accident at a nuclear power station. Think of that. Hundreds of tons of high-level nuclear waste stored in one site in the middle of a war zone. However, we sometimes forget that even in the United States arsenal, we have come very close to a nuclear catastrophe. This is why in the second half of exploration, we're going to bring on James Oskins and Michael Magillet, who were part of the officers' corps of the United States military in charge of these nuclear weapons. And he's going to tell you some harrowing stories of nuclear weapons accidents. Did you know that we dropped several hydrogen warheads on Palomares, Spain, one of our allies? One of the hydrogen bombs fell into the Mediterranean a live nuclear warhead in the Mediterranean Ocean. We had to send down the Alvin submarine. The Alvin submarine located this nuclear warhead sitting in the bomb bottom of the Mediterranean, reached out to grab it, and missed. Well, a hydrogen bomb went tumbling down a small ravine. People held their breath as the Alvin submarine reached out a second time 
and got it. We also drop hydrogen bombs on our own property. Goldsboro, North Carolina. Several hydrogen bombs fell out of a jet, and one of them was snagged by a tree. Now, hydrogen bombs have safeties on them. Just one safety prevented a hydrogen warhead from going off in Goldsboro, North Carolina. So in other words, we have nuked Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, Spain. We've dropped hydrogen bombs on people's backyard in Palomares and in, in uh, South Carolina. And that's the price, the price we pay for so many hydrogen warheads. So think about that when you think about what's happening with the Ukraine, where nuclear power stations are in the crosshairs of a war zone with people shooting at each other, people dying, fires breaking up, shells exploding, all in the presence of a nuclear power plant. That's the price we pay for opening up the atom. So once again, with us today is James Oskin and Michael Magillet, author of a book, Broken Arrow, talking about the secret history of nuclear weapons accidents. The first question for you, Mike, is how did you get interested in the whole concept of nuclear weapons accidents? Well, I was a nuclear weapons specialist in the Air Force from 1980 to 1995, and I retired in 1995. Uh, during most of my time in service, I had a big interest in uh, the history of our career field. And after I got out, I decided I was going to create a web page and research some of the history. And in the process, uh, I learned, of course, you know, a lot of the stuff wasn't public, and we had to do a lot of digging. And in the course of my research, we discovered that there were three Air Force specialty codes in the nuclear weapons career field. There was mechanical, mechanical assembly, there was uh, electronics, and there was uh, nuclear components. And Jim happened to be a person who worked on the uh, nuclear components, and he knew a chief master sergeant that I knew overseas. So from that point on, uh, we're doing research for our, our website. We decided, well, why don't we write a book about broken arrows? Because we knew there, there's a lot of information coming into the public domain. And uh, from that point on, uh, we spent we spent several years gathering information, requesting information, and the end result, of course, is our book, Broken Arrow, the Classified History of U.S. Nuclear Weapons Accidents. Okay, and uh, Jim, precisely how did you obtain this information? Uh, through a lot of correspondence with different government agencies, uh, the information is not held by a single agency, unfortunately. We've contacted the um, Defense Threat Reduction Agency, the National Nuclear Security Administration, Department of Energy, Air Force Safety Command, Air Force Historical Research Agency, the National Archives, Department of Energy, Nevada, U.S. Navy, U.S. Air Force, U.S. Army. Uh, a lot of correspondence and a lot of patience. Okay. Now, let's get right into the whole concept of Broken Arrow. Some of these incidences have, in fact, gone into the public domain, but in a very sketchy way. You guys have compiled the largest and most complete set of information concerning these incidences. However, when I spoke in South Carolina once, uh, people gave me some news clippings, news clippings of what happens in 1958. It was Mars Bluff, Florence, South Carolina. 
A uh, B-47 bomber dropped an atomic bomb on the Gregg family. Uh, the Gregg family heard this explosion. They went outside. The woodshed was blown apart. And later, the military came in and paid them off. Paid them off to keep their mouths shut about that incident and, of course, to pay for some of the damage. And they also came in to bulldoze some of the soil. However, you got the goods. I just have some newspaper clippings. What actually happened in 1958 in Florence, South Carolina? Mike. Uh, There was a B-47 aircraft that was flying at uh, approximately 35 to 40,000 feet. And uh, (laughs) what apparently happened is one of the crew members, the the aircraft was either carrying a Mark VI bomb or we believe a... um, possibly a uh, Mark 36 bomb. And how does that compare with the Hiroshima bomb, by the way? It was The Mark 6 basically was an improved Fat Man bomb. Uh, like the Nagasaki large, bomb? Uh, yes, a large implosion weapon, uh, basically an improved version of the, the Fat Man and the Mark IV. Uh, or it could have been a Mark 36 uh, early thermonuclear weapon, which required, of course, a, a capsule of nuclear weapons material. And during that time frame, of course, they kept the capsule separate in the crew compartment. Uh, we know that the uh, there was an inadvertent release, as they put it in the documentation. And, of course, the, the weapon dropped and uh, impacted with the ground. And, when, of course, that happens. You have about 5,000 pounds of high explosives. Now, it was the conventional it. explosive that detonated, right? We should make that clear. There's yes. been no accidental nuclear detonation ever. But Correct. this was the conventional explosive that detonated. Right. The, the early uh, fission weapons and the early thermonuclear bombs had what was called a capsule, and this was kept separate until immediately before strike, or uh, you know, the, either a crew member had to go in and manually insert the nuclear material, in the case of the Mark VI, or in the case of, say, uh, later early thermonuclear types, it was already installed, but there was an electromagn- uh, electromechanical mechanism, a screwjack mechanism, to put it in that the uh, bomb commander could, you know, just flick a switch. And, of course, uh, now you mentioned, of course, the, uh, the apparent lack of radiation. That's, that's, it is pretty interesting because uh, those early bombs do contain a, uh, a quantity of uh, uh, natural uranium in the tamper. So, yeah, there, there probably was some radioactive, uh, real slight radioactive contamination, but the problem, I think, is, it was in a swampy area, and in the case of, you mentioned Thule, uh, when, when you have, like, water and, you know, residual uh, contaminants around, the, the survey instruments don't pick this material up. Okay, and Jim, uh, tell us a little bit about the uh, cleanup operation. Uh, what, what happens when you drop an atomic bomb on someone's backyard and you have to go in and clean up the mess? Exactly what happens? Well, it depends on the weapon. Um in that case, um, as Mike mentioned, there there probably would be some residual uh, radioactivity from the tamper, but the tamper was composed of what we now call depleted uranium, which actually is a is a very low level uh, radioactive element. In my career, actually, I worked on a lot of that. It's not very hazardous unless you ingest it. Uh, as far as cleanup goes, um, there's not much to it. Uh, the high explosive was more or less fragmented that. Um, 
just leaving leaving it on the surface, basically, to be scooped up. Now, it was mentioned that the bomb might have been an improved Nagasaki bomb. Uh, the Nagasaki bomb was a plutonium bomb. Uh, plutonium is the most toxic chemical known to science. So is it conceivable that plutonium, rather than uranium, was released in that incident in 1958 in South mm -hmm. Carolina? No. And the how's that? Plutonium would have been contained in the capsule. Mm-hmm. And the capsule was not inserted. The capsule was not on board the aircraft at the time. Aha. Uh -huh. So it was not fully loaded then when the bomb was dropped. No, it was not. So there was no danger of a real detonation taking place, but it was no. a broken arrow. No, there was not. I see. Okay. Now let's move on. Uh, you'd think that the military would have learned its lesson, dropping atomic bombs on people's backyards. Let's now talk about Goldsboro, North Carolina, uh, where several hydrogen bombs apparently were dropped, according to the press reports. According to the press reports, uh, every hydrogen bomb has safeties on them, four or five safeties. And all but one of the safeties on one of the hydrogen bombs was set off when its parachute was snagged on a tree, causing a jolt. And the jolt acts almost accidentally set off that hydrogen bomb, according to press reports. Uh, Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara indirectly referred to that incident, stating in, in public that there was one incident where we came very close to an accidental detonation of a nuclear weapon on the United States. Now, these are, of course, published reports. Tell us now what actually happened. Mike? Well, the, uh, the aircraft was flying an airborne alert mission. It was a B-52, and uh, uh, I believe that one was a, a breakup in midair. And what happened was the aircraft, the, the weapons, the Mark 39 weapons inside the aircraft were uh, locked in the U-2 uh, locking me mechanism. The, the, basically, it was like a bicycle chain that wrapped around the weapon and held the weapon in the bomb bay. It was a rather primitive system, but I guess it worked under the circumstances. Uh, the aircraft broke up in flight, and in the process of it, you know, catching fire and breaking up and spinning out of control, the, uh, the weapons were torn free from the bomb bay. And in the process, of course, uh, the, say the bomb rack separated from the shackle and the weapon, and of course it, it pulled the arming rod. Now, there's no electrical power applied to the weapon, but uh, in the early days, in the early weapons, once you pulled, say, an arming rod, it activated a low-voltage thermal battery. And that started the chain of events. Uh, some of the, one of the weapons, of course, uh, was uh, fell with a parachute, which is, I guess, pretty fortunate because it was recovered intact. And that's the weapon that, uh, that uh, of course, they recovered with the parachute in the famous picture. Now, the other weapon fell free, free fall, and uh, there's a number of the uh, mechanisms that, of course, were activated. Of course, as we mentioned, the arming wires were pulled. Uh, a pulse generator was act activated. Uh, there's a number of other components, uh, explosive actuators. There were timers, uh, safety timers that have to run before other uh, components are armed or activated. Uh, for example, there's barrel switches, there's inertial switches. Uh, high-voltage thermal battery. And the final steps, of course, to detonate a weapon is, of course, you have to, the, uh, what we would call the X unit or the fire set has to be armed. And, of course, there's other components that are required to uh, fire a nuclear weapon. For example, there's what's called a tritium reservoir. 
that contains a tritium deuterium gas, which is injected into the hollow pit of the weapon before it actually detonates. So there were still a number of steps that had to the weapon had to go through before it was uh, you know could detonate in the nuclear sense. Uh, we mentioned the, the freefall weapon. That weapon fell to earth and it actually penetrated into the ground. It was basically course destroyed a telescope within itself and the, the secondary actually separated in that case the secondary they estimate probably went down about another 75 feet or so they excavated the area uh, during the excavation they actually recovered some of these components and in the course of doing so they recovered the arming switch and it was destroyed uh, when it hit the earth but they thought at first that the arming switch had armed now of course that would be a, a great matter of concern and Jim and I have gone through the, the uh, reports, and we determined that there's actually another arming switch that had to be activated before final arming and firing. That was called the trajectory arming switch. And they actually, uh, in documentation, they actually noted that there was probably a need for a trajectory arming switch for nuclear safety. Okay. But, uh, you, you did mention that the... You know, there was a lot of concern, and it. it was a serious incident. That's, that's, <laughs> that can't be denied. I mean, it was a wake-up call as far as nuclear safety went. Okay, that, so, uh, Jim, now, could yes. you summarize for us uh, safeties? Uh, how many safeties, like a safety on a gun, how many safeties are there on a hydrogen bomb that you have to activate in order to, for the thing to detonate? And in this incident, exactly how close did we come to setting off all these safeties? It depends actually on the weapon and and when it was manufactured, the age and the, the development of the technology. There's probably on that Mark 39, I believe there were seven safeties. Mm-hmm. Um, two of which did not arm. So there actually was little possibility that it would have detonated nuclearly. So, in other words, there were about seven safeties. Five of them were set off, but two of them held, and that prevented any possibility of an accidental detonation. Is that right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, it functioned as designed. Uh-huh. And what did the military learn after that? This is probably the closest we've ever come, right, to an actual detonation? Um, that we know of, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, now let's move on to 1966. Uh, this time we're going to go to Spain uh, in an incident that was widely reported in the European press. Uh, this time four hydrogen bombs uh, fell out of the bomb bay when there was a KC-135 refueling tanker that collided with the military weapon. Four hydrogen bombs <clears throat> fell out. Three landed on this tourist town. And one landed in the Mediterranean, and it caused mass panic, mass evacuation, widespread coverage in the European press because there was a live hydrogen warhead sitting in the Mediterranean. And according to press reports, uh, the military then sent the Alvin submarine, which is very famous because the Alvin submarine also went down to the Titanic and took those uh, incredible pictures of the Titanic. The Alvin submarine reached out... located the fourth hydrogen bomb, reached out with its grappling uh, hooks, grabbed the weapon, and missed. As a consequence, the bomb tumbled further into the Mediterranean,
causing even more panic in this tourist town. Meanwhile, the military came in with trucks and began to cart off all the radioactive materials. Uh, one bomb had completely broken open and released its plutonium. Now, these are the press reports. Tell us now what actually happened. Uh, Mike. <laughs> well, uh, I guess the, the press is pretty much uh, on, spot on when they're, when they're discussing, you know, the incident in general. But, uh, of course, we have uh, the classified documentation that discusses basically the what happened to every single individual weapon. Uh, for example, uh, you mentioned that, the, of course, the one weapon that fell into the, uh, the Mediterranean, and, of course, that was recovered after, I think, uh, two months or more. Uh, that's interesting because I read a post-motor, uh, post post-mortem report on that, and even at that depth, the uh, the seawater did manage to penetrate all into the weapon components and, and soak the high explosives and everything, so basically the, the weapon, you know, couldn't have detonated. It was basically inerted in, in a, you know, an explosive sense. Um, the other weapons, of course, two weapons did land on the Spanish soil, and there was some uh, plutonium contamin- contamination. And it was, of course, a very serious uh, accident. Uh, we have we have reports of that uh, that we're going to put in our next book. Basically, of course, we're going to expand on a lot of the accidents and introduce some new accidents. But uh, uh, yeah, there, there's a lot of interesting stuff. I guess we can we can discuss on Palomares. In fact, uh, one of my friends up in Montana was actually involved in that uh, accident. He was flying a he was the pilot of a KC-135, and he got a message to switch lead aircraft during the refueling. So that's a rather strange incident there. And, um, Jim, could you elaborate on the cleanup operation? According to press reports, of course, widely covered in the European press. In fact, there's even a book, a book about the Palomares incident. Uh, many trucks had to come in to hard ho- cart off large quantities of radioactive soil. Uh, any comments? Yes, that's true. There was a lot of... Um since two weapons detonated on impact of the soil, um, the high explosive in them detonated. Those weapons did contain a measure of plutonium, which, of course, um, is more hazardous than depleted uranium. And that's basically what they were cleaning up. Um, I believe there were some tomato patches that were involved. A lot of people... um, Basically, the material was, topsoil was scooped off, put into containers, and sent back to the States and buried. And as I understand, correct me if I'm wrong, that fourth hydrogen bomb that fell into the Mediterranean that was reclaimed by the Alban submarine is on display. In fact, I visited it. It's in the Albuquerque Atomic Museum. And as I understand, um, it has a dent in the front part of the bomb when the bomb impacted, and I believe it's on the cover of your book. Is that true? Yes, yes it is. Yeah, the dent actually is in uh, it's in in the in the material. It's a honeycomb material that's designed to absorb impact, and there's no no bomb components actually involved in that area of the weapon. Mm-hmm. That was simply honeycomb material that collapsed. Okay, now let's move on. Uh, We talked about South Carolina, North Carolina, Palomares, and now let's talk about Greenland, just two years 
after the famous Palomares incident. Um, this time, we dropped uh, atomic bombs on the ice in Tule, Greenland, and had then husbands. Well, that's according to the press reports. Tell us now, Mike, what really happened in 1968 in Greenland. Well, we had a B-52 uh, platter for that time, flying in conditions of minus 50 degrees in the dark. The Danes were concerned, but I don't think they were panicked about it. I don't remember reading anything to that effect. Well, I'm afraid that's it for exploration. Once again, our special guests today were James Oskind and Michael Magillet, author of the book Broken Arrow, about the secret history, the long secret history of nuclear weapons accidents. People simply did not know that we dropped hydrogen and atomic bombs on South Carolina, North Carolina, Georgia, Palomar, Spain. Find out by getting a copy of their book by James Oskin and Michael Magillet called Broken Arrow. And let me say a few things about what's happening in the Ukraine. What should the correct path be toward freedom and liberation? My personal point of view, and this is a personal point of view, is that the people of the Ukraine should be given the right of self-determination. Instead of having their destiny chosen by NATO or by the Russians, let there be a national plebiscite authorized by the United Nations. Let the people of Ukraine decide for themselves, not having great powers decide for them their future. Of course, that's in an ideal world. Let's be realistic. Great powers, of course, exert great influence on world affairs. And also, if you want to know more about exploration, go to my website. It's mkaku.org, M-K-A-K-U.org. And on Facebook, I have about 5 million fans on Facebook. And I've written five New York Times bestsellers. My latest New York Times bestseller is called The God Equation. It's about what I do for a living. I work on something called string theory, which we think but cannot yet prove is the fabled unified field theory that could unify all the forces of the universe into one equation, perhaps no more than one inch long. And it's all in my book, The God Equation, The Quest for a Theory of Everything, which will hopefully unravel the secret of the Big Bang, hopefully answer the question, what happened before creation itself? How will the universe die? What is dark matter? What is dark energy? What's on the other side of a black hole? Perhaps all these questions will one day be resolved once we have a theory of everything. That is, a unified field theory, the theory that eluded Einstein for the last 30 years of his life. He chased after this dream of grand unification, the unified field theory, well, find out what all the excitement is about. Find out about a theory that he has even split Nobel Prize winners against each other, the God Equation. So, once again, to find out what I do, go to my website, mkaku.org, M-K-A-K-U.org, or go to my Facebook site. I have 
5 million fans on Facebook, and I've written five New York Times bestsellers. The latest one, again, is called The God Equation, but I've written many other New York Times bestsellers, like Physics of the Future, Physics of the Impossible. So go to my website, mkaku.org, m-k-a-k-u.org, and be part of exploration. Be part of the march of science and its impact on technology. And so once again, join us every week, every week on exploration as we discuss science and its impact on society. In other words, science that touches your life. Science that explains the universe to you. Science that touches each and every one of us. And also, I have one parting thought. And that is that science is more than just appreciating the beauty and the elegance of nature. Science is the engine of prosperity. Where does all the wealth come from in society? Well, from the Industrial Revolution to the Electric Revolution to the revolution of space travel, the revolution of computers and artificial intelligence, all of that stems from science. So science is more than just appreciating nature. Science is about creating wealth. The wealth of society, the richness of society, is all because we've been able to master some of the forces of nature. And so think about that next time you think about science and its impact on your life. Good day. Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku for Exploration.